Hey everyone, welcome back to Black Clock Audio Tales. This is March 2021. This month we're going to be doing Anne Radcliffe. I don't know if we're going to have any guests to talk about the originator of the, what I like to call the Scooby-Doo ending, and gothic literature as we know it, and motherfucking Radcliffe. All right. Uh, except for that intro, uh, the rest of this should be family-friendly, and I hope you enjoy it. Remember, Black Clock Audio Tales, uh, Radio Free Oleander. You can also check out Articulate Warbling from time to time. The intense heat, for it was now noon, obliged the travelers to look out for a shady recess where they might rest for a few hours, and the neighboring thickets, abounding with wild grapes, raspberries, and figs, promised them grateful refreshment. Soon after, they turned from the road into a grove, whose thick foliage entirely excluded the sunbeams, and where a spring, gushing from the rock, gave coolness to the air. And, having alighted and turned the horses to graze, Annette and Ludovico ran to gather fruit from the surrounding thickets, of which they soon returned with an abundance. The travelers, seated under the shade of a pine and cypress grove, and on turf, and rich with such a profusion of fragrant flowers as Emily had scarcely ever seen, even among the Pyrenees, took their simple repast, and viewed with new delight, beneath the dark umbrage of gigantic pines, the glowing landscape stretching to the sea. Emily and Dupont gradually became thoughtful and silent, but Annette was all joy and loquacity, and Ludovico was gay, without forgetting the respectful distance which was due to his companions. The repast being over, Dupont recommended Emily to endeavor to sleep during these sultry hours, and, desiring the servants would do the same, said he would watch the while. But Ludovico wished to spare him this trouble, and Emily and Annette, wearied with traveling, tried to repose while he stood guard with his trombone. When Emily, refreshed by slumber, awoke, she found the sentinel asleep on his post and Dupont awake, but lost in melancholy thought. As the sun was yet too high to allow them to continue their journey, and as it was necessary that Ludovico, after the toils and trouble he had suffered, should finish his sleep, Emily took this opportunity of inquiring by what accident Dupont became Montagny's prisoner, and he, pleased with the interest this inquiry expressed, and with the excuse it gave him for talking to her of himself, he immediately answered her curiosity. I came into Italy, madam, said Dupont, in the service of my country. In an adventure among the mountains, our party, engaging with the bands of Montagny, was routed, and I, with a few of my comrades, was taken prisoner. When they told me whose captive I was, the name of Montagny struck me, for I remembered that Madame Charon, your aunt, had married an Italian of that name, and that you had accompanied them into Italy. It was not, however, till some time after, that I became convinced this was the same Montagny, or learned that you, madame, was under the same roof with myself. 
I will not pain you by describing what were my emotions upon this discovery, which I owed to a sentinel, whom I had so far won to my interest that he granted me many indulgences, one of which was very important to me and somewhat dangerous to myself. But he persisted in refusing to convey any letter or notice of my situation to you, for he justly dreaded the discovery and the consequent vengeance of Montigny. He, however, enabled me to see you more than once. You are surprised, madame, and I will explain myself. And, at length, I gained so far upon the pity or the avarice of the man that he gave me the means of walking on the terrace. Emily now listened with very anxious attention to the narrative of Dupont, who proceeded. In granting this indulgence, he knew that he had nothing to apprehend from a chance of my escaping from a castle which was vigilantly guarded, and the nearest terrace of which rose over a perpendicular rock. He shewed me also, continued Dupont, a door concealed in the cedar wainscot of the apartment where I was confined, which he instructed me how to open, and which, leading into a passage, formed within the thickness of the wall that extended far along the castle, finally opened in an obscure corner of the eastern rampart. I have since been informed that there are many passages of the same kind concealed within the prodigious walls of that edifice, and which were, undoubtedly, contrived for the purpose of facilitating escapes in time of war. Through this avenue, at the dead of night, I often stole to the terrace, where I walked with the utmost caution, lest my steps should betray me to the sentinels on duty in distant parts, for this end of it, being guarded by high buildings, was not watched by soldiers. In one of these midnight wanderings, I saw a light in a casement that overlooked the rampart, and which, I observed, was immediately over my prison chamber. It occurred to me that you might be in that apartment, and, with the hope of seeing you, I placed myself opposite the window. Emily, remembering the figure that had formerly appeared on the terrace, and which had occasioned her so much anxiety, exclaimed, It was you then, Monsieur Dupont, who occasioned me much foolish terror. My spirits were, at that time, so much weakened by long-suffering, that they took alarm at every hint. Dupont, after lamenting that he had occasioned her any apprehension, added, As I rested on the wall opposing your casement, the consideration of your melancholy situation and of my own called from me involuntary sounds of lamentation, which drew you, I fancy, to the casement. I saw there a person whom I believed to be you. Oh, I will say nothing of my emotion at that moment. I wish to speak, but prudence restrained me, till the distant footstep of a sentinel compelled me suddenly to quit my station. It was some time before I had another opportunity of walking, for I could only leave my prison when it happened to be the turn of one man to guard me. Meanwhile, I became convinced from some circumstances related by him that your apartment was over mine, and when again I ventured forth, I returned to your casement, where again I saw you, but without daring to speak. I waved my hand, 
and you suddenly disappeared. Then it was that I forgot my prudence and yielded to lamentation. Again you appeared. He spoke. I heard the well-known accent of your voice. And at that moment, my discretion would have forsaken me again had I not heard also the approaching steps of a soldier when I instantly quitted the place, though not before the man had seen me. He followed down the terrace and gained so fast upon me that I was compelled to make use of a stratagem ridiculous enough to save myself. I had heard of the superstition of many of these men, and I uttered a strange noise with the hope that my pursuer would mistake it for something supernatural, and desist from pursuit. Luckily for myself, I succeeded. The man, it seems, was subject to fits, and the terror he suffered threw him into one. By which accident, I secured my retreat. A sense of the danger I had escaped, and the increased watchfulness which my appearance had occasioned among the sentinels, deterred me ever after from walking on the terrace. But in the stillness of the night, I frequently beguiled myself with an old lute procured for me by a soldier, which I sometimes accompanied with my voice, and sometimes, I will acknowledge, with the hope of making myself heard by you. But it was only a few evenings ago that this hope was answered. I then thought I heard a voice in the wind calling me, yet even then I feared to reply, lest the sentinel at the prison door should hear me. Was I right, madame? In this conjecture, was it you who spoke? Yes, replied Emily with an involuntary sigh. You was right indeed. Dupont, observing the painful emotions which this question revived, now changed the subject. In one of my excursions through the passage, which I have mentioned, I overheard a singular conversation, said he. In the passage, said Emily with surprise, I heard it in the passage, said Dupont, but it proceeded from an apartment adjoining the wall within which the passage wound, and the shell of the wall was there so thin and was also somewhat decayed that I could distinctly hear every word spoken on the other side. It happened that Montigny and his companions were assembled in the room, and Montigny began to relate the extraordinary history of the lady, his predecessor, in the castle. He did, indeed, mention some very surprising circumstances, and whether they were strictly true, his conscience must decide. I fear it will determine against him. But you, madame, have doubtless heard the report which he designs should circulate on the subject of that lady's mysterious fate. I have, sir, replied Emily, and I perceive that you doubt it. I doubted it before the period I am speaking of, rejoined Dupont, but some circumstances mentioned by Montigny greatly contributed to my suspicions. The account I then heard almost convinced me that he was a murderer. I trembled for you, the more so that I had heard the guests mention your name in a manner that threatened your repose, and knowing that the most impious men are often the most superstitious, I determined to try whether I could not awaken their consciences and awe them from the commission of the crime I dreaded. I listened closely to Montigny, and in the most striking passages of his story, I joined my voice, 
and repeated his last words in a disguised and hollow tone. But was you not afraid of being discovered? said Emily. I was not, replied Dupin, for I knew that if Montigny had been acquainted with the secret of this passage, he would not have confined me in the apartment to which it led. I knew also from better authority that he was ignorant of it. The party, for some time, appeared inattentive to my voice, but at length were so much alarmed that they quitted the apartment, and, having heard Montigny order his servants to search it, I returned to my prison, which was very distant from this part of the passage. I remember perfectly to have heard of the conversation you mentioned, said Emily. It spread a general alarm among Montigny's people, and I will own I was weak enough to partake of it. Monsieur Dupont and Emily thus continued to converse of Montigny, and then of France, and of the plan of their voyage. When Emily told him that it was her intention to retire to a convent in Languedoc, where she had been formally treated with much kindness, and from thence to write to her relation, Monsieur Carnel, and inform him of her conduct. There she designed to wait, till La Boulay should again be her own, whither she hoped her income would sometime permit her to return. For Dupont now taught her to expect that the estate of which Montigny had attempted to defraud her was not irrecoverably lost, and again he congratulated her on her escape from Montigny, who, he had not a doubt, meant to have detained her for life. The possibility of recovering her aunt's estates for Valancourt and herself lighted up a joy in Emily's heart, such as she had not known for many months. But she endeavored to conceal this from Monsieur Dupont, lest it should lead him to a painful remembrance of his rival. They continued to converse till the sun was declining in the west, when Dupont awoke Ludovico, and they set forward on their journey. Gradually descending the lower slopes of the valley, they reached the Arno, and wound along its pastoral margin for many miles. Delighted with the scenery around them, and with the remembrances which its classic waves revived. At a distance, they heard the gay song of the peasants among the vineyards, and observed the setting sun tint the waves with yellow luster, and twilight draw a dusky purple over the mountains, which, at length, deepened into night. Then Luciola, the firefly of Tuscany, was seen to flash its sudden sparks among the foliage, while the cicala, with its shrill note, became more clamorous than even during the noonday heat, loving best the hour when the English beetle, with the less offensive sound, wins. His small but sullen horn, as oft he rises, missed the twilight path against the pilgrim born in heedless hum. Collins. The travelers crossed the Arno by moonlight at a ferry and, learning that Pisa was distant only a few miles down the river, they wished to have proceeded thither in a boat, but as none could be procured, they set out on their wearied horses for that city. As they approached it, the vale expanded into a plain, variegated with vineyards, corn, olives, and mulberry groves, 
but it was late before they reached its gates, where Emily was surprised to hear the busy sound of footsteps and the tones of musical instruments, as well as to see the lively groups that filled the streets, and she almost fancied herself again at Venice. But here was no moonlight sea, no gay gondolas dashing the waves, no Palladian palaces to throw enchantments over the fancy and lead it into the wilds of fairy story. The Arno rolled through the town, but no music trembled from the balconies over its waters. It gave only the busy voices of sailors on board vessels just arrived from the Mediterranean, the melancholy heaving of the anchor and the shrill boatswain's whistle, sounds which, since that period, have there sunk almost into silence. They then served to remind Dupont that it was probable he might hear of a vessel sailing soon from France from this port, and thus be spared the trouble of going to Leghorn. As soon as Emily had reached the inn, he went therefore to the quay to make his enquiries. But after all the endeavors of himself and Ludovico, they could hear of no bark destined immediately for France, and the travelers returned to their resting place. Here also, Dupont endeavored to learn where his regiment then lay, but could acquire no information concerning it. The travelers retired early to rest after the fatigues of this day, and on the following, rose early and without pausing to view the celebrated antiquities of the place or the wonders of its hanging tower, pursued their journey in the cooler hours through a charming country, rich with wine and corn and oil. The Apennine, no longer awful or even grand, here softened into the beauty of sylvan and pastoral landscape, and Emily, as she descended them, looked down delighted on Leghorn and its spacious bay, filled with vessels and crowned with these beautiful hills. She was no less surprised and amused on entering this town to find it crowded with persons in the dresses of all nations, a scene which reminded her of a Venetian masquerade, such as she had witnessed at the time of the carnival. But here was bustle without gaiety, and noise instead of music, while elegance was to be looked for only in the waving outlines of the surrounding hills. Monsieur Dupont immediately on their arrival, went down to the quay, where he heard of several French vessels, and of one that was to sail in a few days for Marseille, from whence another vessel could be procured without difficulty to take them across the Gulf of Lyons toward Narbonne, on the coast not many leagues from which the city he understood the convent was seated, to which Emily wished to retire. He, therefore, immediately engaged with the captain to take them to Marseille, and Emily was delighted to hear that her passage to France was secured. Her mind was now relieved from the terror of pursuit, and the pleasing hope of soon seeing her native country, a country which held Valancourt, restored to her spirits a degree of cheerfulness, such as she had scarcely known since the death of her father. At Leghorn also, Dupont heard of his regiment and that it had embarked for France, a circumstance which gave him great satisfaction, for he could now accompany Emily thither without reproach to his conscience, 
or apprehension of displeasure from his commander. During these days, he scrupulously forbore to distress her by a mention of his passion, and she was compelled to esteem and pity, though she could not love him. He endeavored to amuse her by shewing the environments of the town, and they often walked together on the seashore and on the busy quays, where Emily was frequently interested by the arrival and departure of vessels, participating in the joy of meeting friends, and sometimes shedding a sympathetic tear to the sorrow of those that were separating. It was after having witnessed a scene of the latter kind that she arranged the following stanzas. The Mariner Soft came the breath of spring, smooth flowed the tide, and blew the heaven in its mirror smiled. The white sail trembled, swelled, expanded wide. The soldiers at the anchor toiled, with anxious friends that shed the parting tear. The deck was thronged, how swift the moments fly. The vessel heaves, the farewell signs appear. Mute is each tongue, and eloquent each eye. The last dread moment comes. The sailor youth hides the big drop, and smiles amid his pain, soothes his sad bride, and vows eternal truth. Farewell, my love. We shall, shall meet again. Long on the stern, with waving hand, he stood. The crowded shore sinks, lessening from his view as gradual glides the bark among the flood. His bride is seen no more. Adieu, adieu. The breeze of eve moans low, her smile is o'er. Dim steals her twilight down the crimsoned west. He climbs the topmost mast to seek once more the far-seen coast where all his wishes rest. He views its dark line on the distant sky and fancy leads him to his little home. He sees his weeping love, he hears her sigh. He soothes her grief and tells her of joys to come. Eve yields to night, the breeze to wintry gales. In one vast shade, the seas and shores repose. He turns his aching eyes, his spirit fails. The chill tear falls, sad to the deck he goes. The storm of midnight swells, the sails are furled, deep sounds the lead, but finds no friendly shore. Fast o'er the waves the wretched bark is hurled. Oh, Ellen, Ellen, we must meet no more. Lightnings that shew the vast and foamy deep, the rending thunders as they onward roll, the loud, loud winds that o'er the billows sweep. Shake the firm nerve, appall the bravest soul. Ah, what avails the seaman's toiling care? The straining cordage bursts, the mast is riven. The sounds of terror groan along the air, then sink afar. The bark on rocks is driven. Fierce o'er the wreck, the whelming waters passed. The helpless crew sunk in the ruining main. Henry's faint accents trembled in the blast. Farewell, my love, we ne'er shall meet again. Oft, at the calm and silent evening hour, when summer breezes linger on the wave, 
a melancholy voice is heard to pour its lonely sweetness o'er poor Henry's grave. And oft, at midnight, airy strains are heard around the grove where Ellen's form is laid. Nor is the dirge by village maidens feared, for lover spirits guard the holy shade. End of Volume 3, Chapter 9, Part C Org. The Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe Volume 3, Chapter 10 Oh, the joy of young ideas painted on the mind In the warm, glowing colors fancy spreads On objects not yet known when all is new And all is lovely Sacred dramas We now return to Languedoc and to the mention of Count de Villefort, the nobleman who succeeded to an estate of the Marquis de Villeroy, situated near the monastery of St. Clair. It may be recollected that this chateau was uninhabited when St. Hubert and his daughter were in the neighborhood, and that the former was much affected on discovering himself to be so near Chateau Le Blanc, a place concerning which the good old La Voisin afterwards dropped some hints that had alarmed Emily's curiosity. It was in the year 1584, the beginning of that, in which Saint-Aubert died, that Francis Bouvier, Count de Villefort, came into possession of the mansion, an extensive domain called Chateau Le Blanc, situated in the province of Languedoc, on the shore of the Mediterranean. This estate, which during some centuries had belonged to his family, now descended to him on the decease of his relative, the Marquis de Villeroy who had laterly been a man of reserved manners and austere character. Circumstances, which together with the duties of his profession, that often called him into the field, had prevented any degree of intimacy with his cousin, the Count de Villefort. For many years, they had known little of each other, and the Count received the first intelligence of his death, which happened in a distant part of France, together with the instruments that gave him possession of the domain Chateau Le Blanc. But it was not till the following year that he determined to visit that estate when he designed to pass the autumn there. The scenes of Chateau Le Blanc often came to his remembrance, heightened by the touches which a warm imagination gives to the recollection of early pleasures. For many years before, in the lifetime of the Marchioness, and at that age when the mind is particularly sensible to impressions of gaiety and delight, he had once visited this spot, and though he had passed a long intervening period amidst the vexations and tumults of public affairs which too frequently corrode the heart and vitiate the taste, the shades of Languedoc and the grandeur of its distant scenery had never been remembered by him with indifference. During many years the chateau had been abandoned by the late Marquis, and being inhabited only by an old steward and his wife, had been suffered to fall much into decay. To superintend the repairs that would be requisite to make it a comfortable residence had been a principal motive of the Count for passing the autumnal months in Languedoc, and neither the remonstrances or the tears of the Countess, for on urgent occasions she would weep, were powerful enough to overcome his determination. She prepared, therefore, to obey the command which she could not conquer, 
and to resign the gay assemblies of Paris, where her beauty was generally unrivaled and won the applause to which her wit had but feeble claim, for the twilight canopy of woods, the lonely grandeur of mountains, and the solemnity of Gothic halls, and of long, long galleries which echoed only the solitary step of a domestic, or the measured clink that ascended from the great clock, the ancient monitor of the hall below. From these melancholy expectations, she endeavored to relieve her spirits by recollecting all that she had ever heard concerning the joyous vintage of the plains of Languedoc. But there, alas, no airy forms would bound to the gay melody of Parisian dances, and a view of the rustic festivities of peasants could afford little pleasure to a heart in which even the feelings of ordinary benevolence had long since decayed under the corruptions of luxury. The Count had a son and a daughter, the children of a former marriage, who he designed should accompany him to the south of France. Henri, who was in his twentieth year, was in the French service, and Blanche, who was not yet eighteen, had been hitherto confined to a convent, where she had been placed immediately on her father's second marriage. The present Countess, who had neither sufficient ability or inclination to superintend the education of her daughter-in-law, had advised this step and the dread of superior beauty had since urged her to employ every art that might prevail on the Count to prolong the period of Blanche's seclusion. It was, therefore, with extreme mortification that she now understood he would no longer submit on this subject, yet it afforded her some consolation to consider that though the Lady Blanche would emerge from her convent, the shades of the country would, for some time, veil her beauty from the public eye. On the morning which commenced the journey, the postillion stopped at the convent by the Count's order to take up Blanche, whose heart beat with delight at the prospect of novelty and freedom now before her. As the time of her departure drew nigh, her impatience had increased, and the last night, during which she counted every note of every hour, had appeared the most tedious of any she had ever known. The morning light at length dawned. The matin bell rang, she heard the nuns descending from their chambers, and she started from a sleepless pillow to welcome the day which was to emancipate her from the severities of a cloister and introduce her to a world where pleasure was ever smiling and goodness ever blessed, where in short nothing but pleasure and goodness reigned. When the bell of the great gate rang and the sound was followed by that of carriage wheels, she ran with a palpitating heart to her lattice and perceiving her father's carriage in the court below, danced with airy steps along the gallery, where she was met by a nun with a summons from the abbess. In the next moment she was in the parlor, and in the presence of the countess, who now appeared to her as an angel that was to lead her into happiness. But the emotions of the countess on beholding her were not in unison with those of Blanche, who had never appeared so lovely as at this moment, when her countenance, animated by the lightning smile of joy, glowed with the beauty of happy innocence. After conversing for a few minutes with the abbess, the countess rose to go. This was a moment which Blanche had anticipated with such eager expectation, the summit from which she looked down upon the fairy land of happiness, and surveyed all its enchantment. Was it a moment then for tears of regret? Yet it was so. She turned with an altered and dejected countenance to her young companions, who were come to bid her farewell, and wept. 
Even my lady abbess, so stately and so solemn, she saluted with the degree of sorrow, which an hour before she would have believed it impossible to feel, and which may be accounted for by considering how reluctantly we all part, even with unpleasing objects, when the separation is consciously forever. Again she kissed the poor nuns, and then followed the countess from that spot with tears, which she expected to leave only with smiles. But the presence of her father and a variety of objects on the road soon engaged her attention and dissipated the shade which tender regret had thrown upon her spirits. Inattentive to a conversation which was passing between the countess and a mademoiselle Byrne, her friend, Blanche sat, lost in pleasing reverie as she watched the clouds floating silently along the blue expanse, now veiling the sun and stretching their shadows along the distant scene and then disclosing all his brightness. The journey continued to give Blanche inexpressible delight, for new scenes of nature were every instant opening to her view, and her fancy became stored with gay and beautiful imagery. It was on the evening of the seventh day that the travelers came within view of Chateau Leblanc, the romantic beauty of whose situation strongly impressed the imagination of Blanche, who observed with sublime astonishment the Pyrenean Mountains, which had been seen only at a distance during the day, now rising within a few leagues, with their wild cliffs and immense precipices, which the evening clouds floating round them now disclosed and again veiled. The setting rays that tinged their snowy summits with a rosette hue touched their lower points with the various coloring, while the bluish tint that pervaded their shadowy recesses gave the strength of contrast to the splendor of light. The plains of Languedoc, blushing with the purple vine and diversified with groves of mulberry, almond, and olives, spread far to the north and to the east. To the south appeared the Mediterranean, clear as crystal, and blue as the heavens it reflected, bearing on its bosom vessels whose white sails caught the sunbeams and gave animation to the scene. On a high promontory, washed by the waters of the Mediterranean, stood her father's mansion, almost secluded from the eye by woods of intermingled pine, oak, and chestnut, which crowned the eminence and sloped towards the plains on one side, while on the other they extended to a considerable distance along the seashores. As Blanche drew nearer, the Gothic features of this ancient mansion successively appeared. First an embattled turret, rising above the trees, then the broken arch of an immense gateway, retiring beyond them, and she almost fancied herself approaching a castle, such as often celebrated in an early story, where the knights look out from battlements on some champion below, who clothed in black armor comes with his champions to rescue the fair lady of his love from the oppression of his rival, a sort of legends to which she had once or twice obtained access in the library of her convent that, like many others, belonging to the monks, was stored with these relics of romantic fiction. The carriages stopped at a gate, which led into the domain of the chateau, but which was now fastened, and the great bell, that had formerly served to announce the arrival of strangers, having long since fallen from its station, a servant climbed over the ruined part of the adjoining wall to give notice to those within of the arrival of their lord. 
As Blanche leaned from the coach window, she resigned herself to the sweet and gentle emotions which the hour and scenery awakened. The sun had now left the earth, and twilight began to darken the mountains, while the distant waters, reflecting the blush that still glowed in the west, appeared like a line of light skirting the horizon. The low murmur of waves breaking on the shore came in the breeze, and now and then the melancholy dashing of oars was feebly heard from a distance. She was suffered to indulge her pensive mood, for the thoughts of the rest of the party were silently engaged upon the subjects of their several interests. Meanwhile, the Countess, reflecting, with regret, upon the gay parties she had left at Paris, surveyed with disgust what she thought the gloomy woods and solitary wildness of the scene, and shrinking from the prospect of being shut up in an old castle, was prepared to meet every object with displeasure. The feelings of Henri were somewhat similar to those of the Countess. He gave a mournful sigh to the delights of the capital, and the remembrance of a lady who he believed had engaged his infections, and who had certainly fascinated his imagination. But the surrounding country, and the mode of life on which he was entering, had for him at least the charm of novelty, and his regret was softened by the gay expectations of youth. The gates being at length unbarred, the carriage moved slowly on, under spreading chestnuts that almost excluded the remains of day, following what had been formerly a road, but which now, overgrown with luxuriant vegetation, could be traced only by the boundary, formed by the trees on either side, and which wound for near half a mile among the woods, before it reached the chateau. This was the very avenue that St. Hubert and Emily had formerly entered on their first arrival in the neighborhood, with the hope of finding a house that would receive them for the night, and had so abruptly quitted on perceiving the wildness of the place, and a figure which the postillion had fancied was a robber. "'What a dismal place is this!' exclaimed the Countess, as the carriage penetrated the deeper recesses of the woods. "'Surely, my lord, you do not mean to pass all the autumn in this barbarous spot. "'One ought to bring hither a cup of waters of leaf, "'but the remembrance of pleasanter scenes may not heighten, at least, the natural dreariness of these.' "'I shall be governed by circumstances, madame,' said the Count. "'This barbarous spot was inhabited by my ancestors.' The carriage now stopped at the chateau, where, at the door of the great hall, appeared the old steward and the Parisian servants who had been sent to prepare the chateau waiting to receive their lord. Lady Blanche now perceived that the edifice was not built entirely in the Gothic style, but that it had additions of a more modern date. The large and gloomy hall, however, into which she now entered was entirely Gothic, and sumptuous tapestry, which it was now too dark to distinguish, hung upon the walls, and depicted scenes from some of the ancient provincial romances. A vast Gothic window, embroidered with clematis and eglantine that ascended to the south, led the eye, now that the casements were thrown open, through this verdant shade over a sloping lawn to the tops of dark woods that hung upon the brow of the promontory. Beyond appeared the waters of the Mediterranean, stretching far to the south and to the east, where they were lost in the horizon, while to the northeast they were bounded by the luxuriant shores of Languedoc 
and Provence. Enriched with wood and gay with vines and sloping pastures, and to the southwest by the majestic Pyrenees, now fading from the eye beneath the gradual gloom. Blanche, as she crossed the hall, stopped a moment to observe this lovely prospect, which the evening twilight obscured yet did not conceal. But she was quickly awakened from the complacent delight which this scene had diffused upon her mind by the Countess, who, discontented with every object around and impatient for refreshment and repose, hastened forward to a large parlor, whose cedar wainscot, narrow pointed casements, and dark ceiling of carved cypress wood gave it an aspect of peculiar gloom, which the dingy green velvet of the chairs and couches fringed with tarnished gold had once been designed to enliven. While the Countess inquired for refreshment, the Count, attended by his son, went to look over some part of the chateau, and Lady Blanche reluctantly remained to witness the discontent and ill-humor of her stepmother. "'How long have you lived in this desolate place?' said her ladyship to the old housekeeper who came to pay her duty. "'Above twenty years, your ladyship, on the next feast of St. Jerome.' How happened it that you have lived here so long, and almost alone, too? I understood that the chateau had been shut up for some years. Yes, madame. It was for many years after my late lord. The count went to the wars, but it is above twenty years since I and my husband came into his service. The place is so large, and has of late been so lonely that we were lost in it, and after some time we went to live in a cottage at the end of the woods near some of the tenants and came to look after the chateau every now and then. When my lord returned to France from the wars, he took a dislike to the place and never came to live here again, and so he was satisfied with our remaining at the cottage. Alas, alas, how the chateau has changed from what it once was. What delight my late lady used to take in it. I well remember when she came here a bride and how fine it was. Now it has been neglected so long and has gone into such decay, I shall never see those days again. The Countess appeared to be somewhat offended by the thoughtless simplicity with which the old woman regretted former times. Dorothy added, But the chateau will now be inhabited, and cheerful again. Not all the world would tempt me to live in it alone. Well, the experiment will not be made, I believe, said the Countess, displeased that her own silence had been unable to awe the loquacity of this rustic old housekeeper, now spared from further attendance by the entrance of the Count, who said he had been viewing part of the chateau, and found that it would require considerable repairs and some alterations before it would be perfectly comfortable as a place of residence. I'm sorry to hear it, my lord, replied the Countess. And why sorry, madame? Because the place will ill repay your trouble, and were it even a paradise, it would be insufferable at such a distance from Paris. The Count made no reply, but walked abruptly to a window. There are windows, my lord, but they neither admit entertainment or light. They show only a scene of savage nature. I am at a loss, madame, said the Count, to conjecture what you mean by savage nature. Do those plains, or those woods, or that fine expanse of water deserve the name? 
Those mountains certainly do, my lord, rejoined the countess, pointing to the Pyrenees. And this chateau, though not a work of rude nature, is, to my taste at least, one of savage art. The count colored highly. This place, madame, was the work of my ancestors, said he, and you must allow me to say that your present conversation discovers neither good taste or good manners. Blanche, now shocked at an altercation which appeared to be increasing to a serious disagreement, rose to leave the room when her mother's woman entered it, and the countess, immediately desiring to be shown to her apartment, withdrew, attended by Mademoiselle Byrne. Lady Blanche, it being not yet dark, took this opportunity of exploring new scenes, and leaving the parlor, she passed from the hall into a wide gallery, whose walls were decorated by marble pilasters, which supported an arched roof composed of a rich mosaic work. Through a distant window that seemed to terminate the gallery, were seen the purple clouds of evening and a landscape whose features, thinly veiled in twilight, no longer appeared distinctly, but blended into one grand mass, stretched to the horizon, colored only with a tint of solemn gray. The gallery terminated in a saloon, to which the window she had seen through an open door belonged, but the increasing dusk permitted her only an imperfect view of this apartment, which seemed to be magnificent and of modern architecture, though it had been either suffered to fall into decay or had never been properly finished. The windows, which were numerous and large, descended low, and afforded a very extensive, and what Blanche's fancy represented to be, a very lovely prospect, and she stood for some time surveying the grey obscurity, and depicting imaginary woods and mountains, valleys and rivers, on this scene of night. Her solemn sensations, rather assisted than interrupted by the distant bark of a watchdog, and by the breeze as it trembled upon the light foliage of the shrubs. Now and then appeared for a moment among the woods a cottage light, and at length was heard afar off the evening bell of a convent dying on the air. When she withdrew her thoughts from these subjects of fanciful delight, the gloom and silence of the saloon somewhat awed her, and having sought the door of the gallery and pursued, for a considerable time, a dark passage, she came to a hall, but one totally different from that she had formerly seen. By twilight, admitted through an open portico, she could just distinguish this apartment to be of very light and airy architecture, and then it was paved with white marble, pillars of which supported the roof that rose into arches built in the Moorish style. While Blanche stood on the steps of this portico, the moon rose over the sea and gradually disclosed in partial light the beauties of the eminence on which she stood. Whence a lawn, now rude and overgrown with high grass, sloped to the woods that, almost surrounding the chateau, extended in a grand sweep down the southern sides of the promontory to the very margin of the ocean. Beyond the woods, on the north side, appeared a long tract of plains of Languedoc and to the east the landscape she had before dimly seen with the towers of a monastery illumined by the moon rising over dark groves. The soft and shadowy tint that overspread the scene, the waves undulating in the moonlight, and their low measured murmurs on the beach were circumstances that united to elevate the unaccustomed mind of Blanche to enthusiasm. 
and have I lived in this glorious world so long, said she, and never till now beheld such a prospect, never experienced these delights? Every peasant girl on my father's domain has viewed from her infancy the face of nature, has ranged at liberty her romantic wilds, while I have been shut in a cloister from the view of these beautiful appearances, which were designed to enchant all eyes and awaken all hearts. How can the poor nuns and friars feel the full fervor of devotion if they never see the sun rise or set? Never till this evening did I know what true devotion is, for never before did I see the sun sink below the vast earth. Tomorrow, for the first time in my life, I will see it rise. Oh, who would live in Paris to look upon black walls and dirty streets, when in the country they might gaze on blue heavens and all the green earth? This enthusiastic soliloquy was interrupted by a rustling noise in the hall. And while the loneliness of the place made her sensible to fear, she thought she perceived something moving between the pillars. For a moment, she continued silently observing it, till ashamed of her ridiculous apprehensions, she recollected courage enough to demand who was there. Oh, my young lady, is it you? said the old housekeeper, who has come to shut the windows. I am glad it is you. The manner in which she spoke this, with a faint breath, rather surprised Blanche, who said, You seem frightened, Dorothy. What is the matter? No, not frightened, mademoiselle, replied Dorothy, hesitating and trying to appear composed. But I am old, and a little matter startles me. The Lady Blanche smiled at the distinction. I am glad that my Lord Count is come to live at the Chateau, mademoiselle, continued Dorothy for it has been many a year deserted and dreary enough now. The place will look a little as it used to when my poor lady was alive. Blanche inquired how long it was since the Marchioness died. Alas, my lady, replied Dorothy, so long that I have ceased to count the years. The place, to my mind, has mourned ever since, and I am sure my lord's vassals have. But you have lost yourself, mademoiselle. Shall I show you to the other side of the chateau? Blanche inquired how long this part of the edifice had been built. Soon after my lord's marriage, ma'am, replied Dorothy, the place was large enough without this addition, for many rooms of the old building were even then never made use of, and my lord had a princely household, too, but he thought the ancient mansion gloomy, and gloomy enough it is. Lady Blanche now desired to be shown to the inhabited part of the chateau, and as the passages were entirely dark, Dorothy conducted her along the edge of the lawn to the opposite side of the edifice, where, a door opening into the great hall, she was met by Mademoiselle Byrne. "'Where have you been so long?' said she. "'I have begun to think some wonderful adventure had befallen you, and that the giant of this enchanted castle, or a ghost, which no doubt haunts it, had conveyed you through a trap door into some subterranean vault, whence you was never to return.' No, replied Blanche, laughingly. You seem to love adventures so well that I leave them for you to achieve. Well, I am willing to achieve them, provided I am allowed to describe them. My dear Mademoiselle Burns, said Henri, as you met her at the door of the parlor, no ghost of these days would be so savage as to impose silence on you. Our ghosts are more civilized than to condemn a lady to a purgatory, severe even than their own, be it what it may. 
Mademoiselle Byrne replied only by a laugh, and the Count now entering the room, supper was served, during which he spoke little, frequently appeared to be abstracted from the company, and more than once remarked that the place was greatly altered since he had last seen it. Many years have intervened since that period, said he, and though the grand features of the scenery admit of no change, they impressed me with sensations very different from those I formerly experienced. Did these scenes, sir, said Blanche, ever appear more lovely than they do now? To me this seems hardly possible. The Count, regarding her with a melancholy smile, said, They once were as delightful to me as they are now to you. The landscape has not changed, but time has changed me. From my mind the illusion which gave spirit to the coloring of nature is fading fast. If you live, my dear Blanche, to revisit this spot, at the distance of many years you will perhaps remember and understand the feelings of your father. Lady Blanche, affected by these words, remained silent. She looked forward to that period which the Count anticipated, and considering that he who now spoke would then probably be no more, her eyes bent to the ground, were filled with tears. She gave her hand to her father, who, smiling affectionately, rose from his chair and went to a window to conceal her emotion. The fatigues of the day made the party separate at an early hour, when Blanche retired through a long oak gallery to her chamber, whose spacious and lofty walls, high antiquated casements, and what was the effect of these, its gloomy air did not reconcile her to its remote situation in this ancient building. The furniture also was of ancient date. The bed was of blue damask, trimmed with tarnished gold lace, and its lofty tester rose in a form of a canopy, whence the curtains descended like those of such tents as are sometimes represented in old pictures, and indeed much resembling those exhibited on the folded tapestry with which the chamber was hung. To Blanche, Every object here was a matter of curiosity, and taking the light from her woman to examine the tapestry, she perceived that it represented scenes from the wars of Troy, though the almost colorless worsted now mocked the glowing actions they once had painted. She laughed at the ludicrous absurdity she observed till, recollecting that the hands which wove it were like the poet whose thoughts of fire they had attempted to express long since moldered into dust. A train of melancholy ideas passed over her mind, and she almost wept. Having given her woman a strict injunction to awaken her before sunrise, she dismissed her, and then to dissipate the gloom which reflection had cast upon her spirits, opened one of the high casements, and was again cheered by the face of living nature. The shadowy earth, the air and ocean, all was still. Along the deep, serene of the heavens, a few light clouds floated slowly, through whose skirts the stars seemed now to tremble, and now to emerge with purer splendor. Blanche's thoughts rose involuntarily to the great author of the sublime objects she contemplated, and she breathed a prayer of finer devotion than any she had ever uttered beneath the vaulted roof of the cloister. At this casement she remained till the glooms of midnight were stretched over the prospect. She then retired to her pillow, 
and with gay visions of tomorrow, to those sweet slumbers which health and happy innocence only know. Tomorrow to fresh woods and pastures new. End of Volume 3, Chapter 10 Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe Volume 3, Chapter 11 What transport to retrace our early plays, our easy bliss when each thing joy supplied, the woods, the mountains, and the warbling maze of the wild brooks. Thompson Blanche's slumbers continued till long after the hour which she had so impatiently anticipated, for her woman, fatigued with traveling, did not call her till breakfast was nearly ready. Her disappointment, however, was instantly forgotten when, on opening the casement, she saw on one hand the wide sea sparkling in the morning rays with its stealing sails and glancing oars, and on the other the fresh woods, the plains far stretching, and the blue mountains all glowing with the splendors of day. As she inspired the pure breeze, health spread a deeper blush upon her countenance, and pleasure danced in her eyes. Who could first invent convents, she said, and who could first persuade people to go into them, and to make religion a pretense, too, where all that should inspire it is so carefully shut out? God is best pleased with the homage of a grateful heart, and when we view his glories, we feel most grateful. I never felt so much devotion during the many dull years I was in the convent as I have done in the few hours that I have been here, where I need only look on all around me to adore God in my inmost heart. Saying this, she left the window, bounded along the gallery, and in the next moment was in the breakfast room where the Count was already seated. The cheerfulness of a bright sunshine had dispersed the melancholy glooms of his reflections. A pleasant smile was on his countenance, and he spoke in an enlivening voice to Blanche, whose heart echoed back the tones. Henri, and soon after, the Countess with Mademoiselle Byrne appeared, and the whole party seemed to acknowledge the influence of the scene. Even the Countess was so much reanimated as to receive the civilities of her husband with complacency and but once forgot her good humor, which was when she asked whether they had any neighbors who were likely to make this barbarous spot more tolerable, and whether the Count believed it possible for her to exist here without some amusement. Soon after breakfast, the party dispersed. The Count, ordering his steward to attend to him in the library, went to survey the conditions of his premises, and to visit some of his tenants. Henry hastened with alacrity to the shore to examine a boat that was to bear them on a little voyage in the evening and to superintend the adjustment of a silk awning, while the Countess, attended by Mademoiselle Byrne, retired to an apartment on the modern side of the chateau, which was fitted up with airy elegance, and, as the windows opened upon the balconies that fronted the sea, she was there saved from the view of the horrid Pyrenees. Here, while she reclined on a sofa, and, casting her languid eyes over the ocean, which appeared beyond the wood-tops, indulged in the luxuries of ennui. Her companion read aloud a sentimental novel, on some fashionable system of philosophy, for the Countess was herself somewhat of a philosopher, especially as to infidelity, and among a certain circle, her opinions were waited for with impatience, and received as doctrines. 
The Lady Blanche, meanwhile, hastened to indulge amidst the wild wood walks around the chateau her new enthusiasm, where, as she wandered under the shades, her gay spirits gradually yielded to pensive complacency. Now she moved with solemn steps beneath the gloom of thickly interwoven branches, where the fresh dew still hung upon every flower that peeped from among the grass, and now tripped sportively along the path on which the sunbeams started and the checkered foliage trembled, where the tender greens of the beech, the acacia, and the mountain ash, mingling with the solemn tints of the cedar, the pine, and cypress, exhibited as fine a contrast of coloring as the majestic oak and oriental plain did of form, to the feathery lightness of the cork tree and the waving grace of the poplar. Having reached a rustic seat within a deep recess of the woods, she rested a while, and, as her eyes caught through the distant opening a glimpse of the blue waters of the Mediterranean, while the white sail, gliding on its bosom, or the broad mountain glowing beneath the midday sun, her mind experienced somewhat of that exquisite delight which awakens the fancy and leads to poetry. The hum of bees alone broke the stillness around her, as, with other insects of various hues, they sported gaily in the shade or sipped sweets from the fresh flowers, and, while Blanche watched a butterfly flitting from bud to bud, she indulged herself in imagining the pleasures of its short day till she had composed the following stanzas. The Butterfly to His Love What bowery dell with fragrant breath courts thee to stay thy airy flight, nor seeks again the purple heath, so oft the scene of gay delight. Long I've watched the lily's bell, whose whiteness stole the morning's beam. No fluttering sound thy coming tell, no waving wings at distance gleam. But fountains fresh, nor breathing grow, nor sunny mead, nor blossom tree, so sweet as lily's cell shall prove the bower of constant love in me. When April buds begin to blow, the primrose and the harebell blue, that on the verdant moss bank grow with violent cups and weep and dew. When wanton gales breathe through the shade and shake the blooms and steal their sweets and swell the song of every glade, I range the forest green retreats. There, through the tangled wood walks play, where no rude urchin paces near, where sparely peeps the sultry day and light dews freshen all the air. High on the sunbeam oft I sport, o'er bower and fountain, vale and hill, oft every blushing flower court that hangs its head o'er winding rill. But these I'll leave to be thy guide, and shew thee where the jasmine spreads, her snowing leaf where mayflowers hide, and rosebuds rear their peeping heads. With me the mountain summit scale, and taste the wild thyme's honeyed bloom, whose fragrance floating on the gale, off leads me to the cedar's gloom. Yet, yet, no sound comes in the breeze. What shade thus dares to tempt thy stay? Once me alone thy wish to please, and with me only thou wouldst stray. But while thy long delay I mourn, and chide the sweet shades for their guile, thou mayst be true, and they forlorn, and fairy favors court thy smile. The tiny queen of fairyland, who knows thy speed, hath sent thee far, to bring o'er air the night watch stand, rich essence for her shadowy car. 
perchance her acorn's cups to fill with nectar from the Indian rose, or rather near some haunted rill, may dews that lull to sleep love's woe. Oh, o'er the mountains bade thee fly, to tell her fairy love to speed, when evening steals upon the sky, to dance along the twilight mead. But now I see thee sailing low, gay as the brightest flowers of spring, thy coat of blue and jet I know, and well thy gold and purple wing. Born on the glade thou comest to me, O welcome, welcome to my home. In Lily's cell we'll live in glee, together o'er the mountains roam. When Lady Blanche returned to the chateau, instead of going to the apartment of the Countess, she amused herself with wandering over that part of the edifice which she had not yet examined, of which the most ancient first attracted her curiosity. For though what she had seen of the modern was gay and elegant, there was something in the former more interesting to her imagination. Having passed up the great staircase and through the oak gallery, she entered upon a long suite of chambers whose walls were either hung with tapestry or wainscoted with cedar, the furniture of which looked almost as ancient as the rooms themselves. The spacious fireplaces, where no mark of social cheer remained, presented an image of cold desolation, and the whole suite had so much the air of neglect and desertion that it seemed as if the venerable persons whose portraits hung upon the walls had been the last to inhabit them. On leaving these rooms, she found herself in another gallery, one end of which was terminated by a back staircase and the other by a door that seemed to communicate with the north side of the chateau, but which being fastened, she descended the staircase and, opening a door in the wall a few steps down, found herself in a small square room that formed part of the west turret of the castle. Three windows presented each a separate and beautiful prospect, that to the north overlooking the Languedoc, another to the west, the hills ascending toward the Pyrenees, whose awful summits crowned the landscape, and a third fronting the south gave the Mediterranean and a part of the wild shores of the Roussillon to the eye. Having left the turret and descended the narrow staircase, she found herself in a dusky passage where she wandered, unable to find her way, till impatience yielded to apprehension and she called for assistance. Presently, steps approached, and light glimmered through a door at the other extremity of the passage, which was opened with caution by some person who did not venture beyond it, and whom Blanche observed in silence till the door was closing, when she called aloud and hastening toward it, perceived the old housekeeper. Dear Mademoiselle, is it you? said Dorothy. How could you find your way hither? Had Blanche been less occupied by her own fears, she would probably have observed the strong expression of terror and surprise on Dorothy's countenance, who now led her through a long succession of passages and rooms that looked as if they had been uninhabited for a century till they reached that appropriated to the housekeeper, where Dorothy entreated she would sit down and take refreshment. Blanche accepted the sweetmeats offered to her, mentioned her discovery of the pleasant turret and her wish to appropriate it to her own use. Whether Dorothy's taste was not so sensible to the beauties of the landscape as her young ladies, or that the constant view of lovely scenery had deadened it, she forbore to praise the subject of Blanche's enthusiasm, 
which, however, her silence did not repress. To Lady Blanche's inquiry of whither the door she had found fastened at the end of the gallery led, she replied that it opened to a suite of rooms which had not been entered during many years. For, added she, my late lady died in one of them, and I could never find in my heart to go into them since. Blanche, though she wished to see these chambers, forbore on observing that Dorothy's eyes were filled with tears to ask her to unlock them, and, soon after, went to dress for dinner, at which the whole party met in good spirits and good humor, except the Countess, whose vacant mind, overcome by the languor of idleness, would neither suffer her to be happy herself, or to contribute to the happiness of others. Mademoiselle Byrne, attempting to be witty, directed her bandinage against Henri, who answered, because he could not well avoid it, rather than from any inclination to notice her, whose liveliness sometimes amused, but whose conceit and insensibility often disgusted him. The cheerfulness with which Blanche rejoined the party vanished on her reaching the margins of the sea. She gazed with apprehension upon the immense expanse of waters, which, at a distance, she beheld only with delight and astonishment, and it was by a strong effort that she so far overcame her fears as to follow her father into the boat. As she silently surveyed the vast horizon, bending round the distant verge of the ocean, an emotion of sublimest rapture struggled to overcome a sense of personal danger. A light breeze played on the water and on the silk awning of the boat, and waved the foliage of the receding woods that crowned the cliffs for many miles, and which the Count surveyed with the pride of conscious property as well as with the eye of taste. At some distance, among these woods, stood a pavilion which had once been the scene of social gaiety and which its situation still made one of romantic beauty. Thither the Count had ordered coffee and other refreshments to be carried, and thither the sailors now steered their course, following the windings of the shore, round many a woody promontory and circling bay, while the pensive tones of horns and other wind instruments played by the attendants in the distant boat echoed among the rocks and died along the waves. Blanche had now subdued her fears, a delightful tranquility stole over her mind and held her in silence, and she was too happy even to remember the convent or her former sorrows as subjects of comparison with her present felicity. The Countess felt less unhappy than she had done since the moment of her leaving Paris, for her mind was now under some degree of restraint. She feared to indulge its wayward humors, and even wished to recover the Count's good opinion. On his family, and on the surrounding scene, he looked with tempered pleasure and benevolent satisfaction, while his son exhibited the gay spirits of youth, anticipating new delights, and regretless of those that were past. After near an hour's rowing, the party landed and ascended a little path overgrown with vegetation. At a little distance from the point of the eminence, within the shadowy recess of the woods, appeared the pavilion, which Blanche perceived, as she caught a glimpse of its portico between the trees, to be built of a variegated marble. As she followed the Countess, she often turned her eyes with rapture toward the ocean, seen beneath the dark foliage far below, and from thence upon the deep woods, whose silence and impenetrable gloom 
awakened emotions more solemn, but scarcely less delightful. The pavilion had been prepared, as far as was possible, on a very short notice, for the reception of its visitors, but the faded color of its painted walls and ceiling, and the decayed drapery of its once magnificent furniture, declared how long it had been neglected and abandoned to the empire of the changing seasons. While the party partook of a collation of fruit and coffee, the horns, placed in the distant part of the woods, where an echo sweetened and prolonged their melancholy tones, broke softly on the stillness of the scene. This spot seemed to attract the admiration of the countess, or perhaps it was merely the pleasure of planning furniture and decorations that made her dwell so long on the necessity of repairing and adorning it, while the count, never happier than when he saw her mind engaged by natural and simple objects, acquiesced in all her design concerning the pavilion. The paintings on the walls and coved ceilings were to be renewed. The canopies and sofas were to be of a light green damask. Marble statues of wood nymphs bearing on their heads baskets of living flowers that were to adorn the recesses of the windows, descending to the ground, were to admit to every part of the room, and it was of the tagonal form, the various landscape. One window opened upon a romantic glade where the eye roved among the woody recesses, and the scene was bounded only by a lengthened pomp of groves. From another, the woods receding disclosed the distant summit of the Pyrenees. A third fronted an avenue, beyond which the gray towers of the Chateau Leblanc and a picturesque part of its ruin were seen partially among the foliage, while a fourth gave, between the trees, a glimpse of the green pastures and villages that diversify the banks of the Ode. The Mediterranean, with bold cliffs that overlooked its shores, were the grand objects of a fifth window, and the others gave, in different points of view, the wild scenery of the woods. After wandering for some time in these, the party returned to the shore and embarked, and the beauty of the evening tempted them to extend their excursion. They proceeded further up the bay. A dead calm had succeeded the light breeze that wafted them hither, and the men took to their oars. Around the waters were spread into one vast expanse of polished mirror, reflecting the gray cliffs and feathery woods that overhung its surface. The glow of the western horizon and the dark clouds that came slowly from the east Blanche loved to see the dipping oars imprint the water and to watch the spreading circles they left, which gave a tremulous motion to the reflected landscape without disturbing the harmony of its features. Above the darkness of the woods, her eye now caught a cluster of high towers, touched with the splendor of the setting rays, and, soon after, the horns being then silent, she heard the faint swell of choral voices from a distance. What voices are those upon the air, said the Count, looking round and listening, but the strain had ceased. It seemed to be a Vesper's hymn, which I have often heard in my convent, said Blanche. We are near the monastery then, observed the Count, and the boat soon after, doubling a lofty headland, the monastery of St. Clair appeared, seated near the margin of the sea, where the cliffs, suddenly sinking, formed a low shore within a small bay, almost encircling the woods, among which partial features of the edifice were seen. The great gate and gothic windows of the hall, the cloisters and the side of a chapel, 
more remote, while a venerable arch, which had once led to a part of the fabric, now demolished, stood a majestic ruin detached from the main building, beyond which appeared a grand perspective of the woods. On the gray walls the moss had fastened, and round the pointed windows of the chapel, the ivy and the briony hung in many a fantastic wreath. All without was silent and forsaken, but, while Blanche gazed with admiration on this venerable pile, whose effect was heightened by the strong lights and shadows thrown athwart it by a cloudy sunset, a sound of many voices slowly chanting arose from within. The Count bade his men to rest on their oars. The monks were singing the hymns of the Vespers, and some female voices mingled with the strain, which rose by soft degrees till the high organ and the choral sound swelled into full and solemn harmony. The strain soon after dropped into sudden silence, and was renewed in a low and still more solemn key, till, at length, the holy chorus died away and was heard no more. Blanche sighed, tears trembled in her eyes, and her thoughts seemed wafted with the sounds to heaven. While a rapt stillness prevailed in the boat, a train of friars, and then of nuns, veiled in white, issued from the cloisters and passed under the shade of the woods to the main body of the edifice. The Countess was the first of the party to awaken from this pause of silence. These dismal hymns and friars makes one quite melancholy, said she. Twilight is coming on. Pray, let us return, or it will be dark before we get home. The Count, looking up, now perceived that the twilight of evening was anticipated by an approaching storm. In the east a tempest was collecting, a heavy gloom came on, opposing and contrasting the glowing splendor of the setting sun. The clamorous sea-fowl skimmed in fleet circles upon the surface of the sea, dipping their light opinions in the wave as they fled away in search of shelter. The boatmen pulled hard on their oars, but the thunder that now muttered at a distance and the heavy drops that began to dimple the water made the Count determined to put back to the monastery for shelter, and the course of the boat was immediately changed. As the clouds approached the west, their lurid darkness changed to a deep ruddy glow, which by the reflection seemed to fire the tops of the woods and the shattered towers of the monastery. The appearance of the heavens alarmed the Countess and Mademoiselle Byrne, whose expressions of apprehension distressed the Count and perplexed his men, while Blanche continued silent, now agitated with fear, and now with admiration, as she viewed the grandeur of the clouds and their effect on the scenery, and listened to the long, long peals of thunder that rolled through the air. The boat, having reached the lawn of the monastery, the Count sent a servant to announce his arrival and to entreat shelter of the superior, who soon after appeared at the great gate, attended by several monks, while the servant returned with a message, expressive at once of hospitality and pride, but of pride disguised in submission. The party immediately disembarked, and having hastily crossed the lawn, for the shower was now heavy, were received at the gate by the superior, who, as they entered, stretched forth his hand and gave his blessing as they passed into the great hall, where the Lady Abbess waited, attended by several nuns, clothed, like herself, in black and veiled in white. The veil of the abbess was, however, thrown half back, 
and discovered a countenance whose chaste dignity was sweetened by the smile of welcome with which she addressed the countess, whom she led with Blanche and Mademoiselle Byrne into the convent parlor, while the Count and Henri were conducted by the superior to the refectory. The countess, fatigued and discontented, received the politeness of the abbess with careless haughtiness, and had followed her with indolent steps to the parlor, over which the painted casements and wainscot of larchwood threw, at all times, a melancholy shade, and where the gloom of evening now roared almost to darkness. While the Lady Abbess ordered refreshments and conversed with the Countess, Blanche withdrew to a window, the lower panes of which, being without painting, allowed her to observe the progress of the storm over the Mediterranean, whose dark waves that had so lately slept now came boldly swelling in long succession to the shore where they burst in white foam and threw up a high spray over the rocks. A red sulfurous tent overspread the long line of clouds that hung over the western horizon, beneath whose dark skirts the sun, looking out, illumined the distant shores of Languedoc, as well as the tufted summits of the nearer woods, and shed a partial gleam on the western waves. The rest of the scene was in deep gloom, except where a sunbeam darting between the clouds glanced on the white wings of the sea-fowl that circled high among them, or touched the swelling sail of a vessel which was seen laboring in the storm. Blanche, for some time, anxiously watched the progress of the bark as it threw the waves in foam around it, and, as the lightning flashed, looked to the opening heavens with many a sigh for the fate of the poor mariners. The sun at length set, and the heavy clouds which had long impended dropped over the splendor of his course. The vessel, however, was yet dimly seen, and Blanche continued to observe it till the quick succession of flashes lighting up the gloom of the whole horizon warned her to retire from the window, and she joined the abbess, who, having exhausted all her topics of conversation with the countess, had now leisure to notice her but their discourse was interrupted by tremendous peals of thunder, and the bell of the monastery, soon after ringing out, summoned the inhabitants to prayer. As Blanche passed the window, she gave another look to the ocean, where, by the momentary flash that illumined the vast body of waters, she distinguished the vessel she had observed before amidst a sea of foam, breaking the billows, the mass now bowing to the waves, and then rising high in the air. She sighed fervently as she gazed, and then followed the Lady Abbess and the Countess to the chapel. Meanwhile, some of the Count's servants, having gone by land to the chateau for carriages, returned soon after Vespers had concluded, when, the storm being somewhat abated, the Count and his family returned home. Blanche was surprised to discover how much the windings of the shore had deceived her concerning the distance of the chateau from the monastery, whose vesper bell she had heard on the preceding evening from the window of the west saloon, and whose towers she would also have seen from thence had not twilight veiled them. On their arrival at the chateau, the countess, affecting more fatigue than she really felt, withdrew to her apartment, and the count, with his daughter and Henri, went to the supper-room, where they had not been long when they heard, in a pause of the gust, a firing of guns, which the Count, understanding to be a signal of distress from some vessel in the storm, 
went to a window that opened towards the Mediterranean to observe further, but the sea was now involved in utter darkness, and the loud howlings of the tempest had again overcome every other sound. Blanche, remembering the bark which she had seen before, now joined her father with trembling anxiety. In a few moments the report of guns was again borne along the wind, and as suddenly wafted away. A tremendous burst of thunder followed, and, in the flash that preceded it, and which seemed to quiver over the whole surface of the waters, a vessel was discovered, tossing amidst the white foam of the waves at some distance from the shore. Impenetrable darkness again involved the scene, but soon a second flash shooed the bark, with one sail unfurled, driving towards the coast. Blanche hung upon her father's arm, and looks full of agony, of united terror and pity, which were unnecessary to awaken the heart of the Count, who gazed upon the sea with a piteous expression, and perceiving that no boat could live in the storm, forbore to send one, but he gave orders to his people to carry torches out upon the cliffs, hoping they might prove a kind of beacon to the vessel, or at least warn the crew of the rocks they were approaching. While Henri went out to direct on what part of the cliffs the light should appear, Blanche remained with her father at the window, catching every now and then, as the lightnings flashed, a glimpse of the vessel, and she soon saw, with reviving hope, the torches flaming on the blackness of night, and as they waved over the cliffs, casting a red gleam on the gasping billows. When the firing gun was repeated, the torches were tossed high in the air, as if answering the signal, and the firing was then redoubled, but, though the wind bore the sound away, she fancied, as the lightnings glanced, that the vessel was much nearer the shore. The Count's servants were now seen running to and fro on the rocks, some venturing almost to the point of the crags and bending over, held out their torches, fastened to long poles, while others, whose steps could be traced only by the course of the lights, descended the steep and dangerous path that wound to the margins of the sea, and with loud halloos hailed the mariners whose shrill whistle and then feeble voices were heard at intervals mingling with the storm. Sudden shouts from the people on the rocks increased the anxiety of Blanche to an almost intolerable degree, but her suspense concerning the fate of the mariners was soon over when Henri, running breathless into the room, told that the vessel was anchored in the bay below, but in so shattered a condition that it was feared she would part before the crew could disembark. The Count immediately gave orders for his own boats to assist in bringing them to shore, and of such of these unfortunate strangers as could not be accommodated in the adjacent hamlet should be entertained at the chateau. Among the latter were Emily St. Aubert, Monsieur Dupont, Ludovico, and Annette, who, having embarked at Leghorn and reached Marseilles, were from thence crossing the Gulf of Lyon when the storm overtook them. They were received by the Count with his usual benignity, who, though Emily wished to have proceeded immediately to the Monastery of St. Clair, would not allow her to leave the chateau that night, and indeed, the terror and fatigue she had suffered would scarcely have permitted her to go farther. In Monsieur Dupont, the Count discovered an old acquaintance, and much joy and congratulations passed between them, after which Emily was introduced by name to the Count's family, 
whose hospitable benevolence dissipated the little embarrassment which her situation had occasioned her, and the party were soon seated at the supper-table. The unaffected kindness of Blanche, and the lively joy she expressed on the escape of the strangers, for whom her pity had been so much interested, gradually revived Emily's languid spirits, and Dupont, relieved from his terrors for her and for himself, felt the full contrast between his late situation on a dark and tremendous ocean and his present one in a cheerful mansion where he was surrounded with plenty, elegance, and smiles of welcome. Annette, meanwhile, in the servants' hall, was telling all of the dangers she had encountered and congratulating herself so heartily upon her own and Ludovico's escape that on her present comforts that she often made all that part of the chateau ring with merriment and laughter. Ludovico's spirits were as gay as her own, but he had discretion enough to restrain them, and tried to check hers, though in vain, till her laughter at length ascended to my lady's chamber, who sent to inquire what occasioned so much uproar in the chateau, and to command silence. Emily withdrew early to seek the repose she had so much required, but her pillow was long a sleepless one. On this her return to her native country, many interesting remembrances were awakened. All the events and sufferings she had experienced since she had quitted it came in long succession to her fancy and were chased only by the image of Valancourt, with whom to believe herself once more in the same land, after they had been so long and so distantly separated, gave her emotions of indescribable joy, but which afterwards yielded to anxiety and apprehension when she considered the long period that had elapsed since any letter had passed between them, and how much might have happened in this interval to affect her future peace. But the thought that Valancourt might be now no more, or, if living, might have forgotten her, was so very terrible to her heart that she would scarcely suffer herself to pause upon the possibility. She determined to inform him on the following day of her arrival in France, which it was scarcely possible he could know but by a letter from herself, and, after soothing her spirits with the hope of soon hearing that he was well and unchanged in his affections, she at length sunk to repose. End of chapter 11 Reading by Belinda Brown of Indianapolis, Indiana The Mysteries of Adolfo by Anne Radcliffe, Volume 3, Chapter 12. Oft wooed the gleam of Cynthia, silver bright, in cloisters dim, far from the haunts of folly, with freedom by my side, and soft-eyed melancholy. Gray. The Lady Blanche was so much interested for Emily, that, upon hearing that she was going to reside in the neighboring convent, she requested the Count would invite her to lengthen her stay at the chateau. And you know, my dear sir, added Blanche, how delighted I shall be with such a companion, for at present I have no friend to walk or to read with, since Mademoiselle Byrne is my mamma's friend only. The Count smiled at the youthful simplicity with which his daughter yielded to first impressions, and, though he chose to warn her of their danger, he silently applauded the benevolence that could thus readily expand in confidence to a stranger. 
He had observed Emily, with attention, on the preceding evening, and was as much pleased with her as it was possible he could be with any person on so short an acquaintance. The mention made of her by Monsieur Dupont had also given him a favorable impression of Emily, but, extremely cautious as to those whom he introduced to the intimacy of his daughter, he determined, on hearing that the former was no stranger at the convent of St. Clair, to visit the abbess, and, if her account corresponded with his wish, to invite Emily to pass some time at the chateau. On this subject, he was influenced by a consideration of the Lady Blanche's welfare, still more than by either a wish to oblige her, or to befriend the orphan Emily, for whom, however, he felt considerably interested. On the following morning, Emily was too much fatigued to appear, but Monsieur Dupont was at the breakfast table, when the Count entered the room, who pressed him as his former acquaintance, and the son of a very old friend, to prolong his stay at the chateau, an invitation which Dupont willingly accepted, since it would allow him to be near Emily, and, though he was not conscious of encouraging a hope that she would ever return his affection, he had not fortitude enough to attempt at present to overcome it. Emily, when she was somewhat recovered, wandered with her new friend over the grounds belonging to the chateau, as much delighted with the surrounding views as Blanche, in the benevolence of her heart, had wished. From thence she perceived, beyond the woods, the towers of the monastery, and remarked that it was to this convent she designed to go. "'Ah!' said Blanche, with surprise. "'I am but just released from a convent, and would you go into one? If you could know what pleasure I feel in wandering here at liberty, and in seeing the sky and the fields and the woods all around me, I think you would not.' Emily, smiling at the warmth with which the Lady Blanche spoke, observed that she did not mean to confine herself to a convent for life. "'No, you may not intend it now,' said Blanche, "'but you do not know to what the nuns may persuade you to consent. I know how kind they will appear, and how happy, for I have seen too much of their art.' When they returned to the chateau, Lady Blanche conducted Emily to her favorite turret, and from thence they rambled through the ancient chambers, which Blanche had visited before. Emily was amused by observing the structure of these apartments, and the fashion of their old but still magnificent furniture, and by comparing them with those of the castle of Udolpho, which were yet more antique and grotesque. She was also interested by Dorothy, the housekeeper, who attended them, whose appearance was almost as antique as the objects around her, and who seemed no less interested by Emily, on whom she frequently gazed with so much deep attention as scarcely to hear what was said to her. While Emily looked from one of the casements, she perceived with surprise some objects that were familiar to her memory, the fields and woods with the gleaming brook, which she had passed with La Voisin one evening, soon after the death of Monsieur Saint-Aubert, on her way from the monastery to her cottage, and she now knew this to be the chateau which he had then avoided, and concerning which he had dropped some remarkable hints. Shocked by this discovery, yet scarcely knowing why, she mused for some time in silence, and remembered the emotion which her father had betrayed on finding himself so near this mansion, and some other circumstances of his conduct, that now greatly interested her. The music, too, which she had formerly heard, 
and, respecting which La Voisin had given such an odd account, occurred to her, and, desirous of knowing more concerning it, she asked Dorothy whether it returned at midnight, as usual, and whether the musician had yet been discovered. "'Yes, mademoiselle,' replied Dorothy. "'That music is still heard, but the musician has never been found out, nor ever will, I believe, though there are some people who can guess.' "'Indeed,' said Emily. "'Then why do they not pursue the enquiry?' "'Ah, young lady, enquiry enough has been made, but who can pursue a spirit?' Emily smiled, and, remembering how lately she had suffered herself to be led away by superstition, determined now to resist its contagion. Yet, in spite of her efforts, she felt awe mingle with her curiosity on this subject, and Blanche, who had hitherto listened in silence, now inquired what this music was, and how long it had been heard. "'Ever since the death of my lady, madam,' replied Dorothy, "'Why, the place is not haunted, surely?' said Blanche, between jesting and seriousness. "'I have heard that music almost ever since my dear lady died,' continued Dorothy, "'and never before then. But that is nothing to some things I could tell of.' "'Do, pray, tell them, then,' said Lady Blanche, now more in earnest than in jest. "'I am much interested, for I have heard Sister Henriette and Sister Sophie in the convent,' tell of such strange appearances, which they themselves had witnessed. You never heard, my lady, I suppose, what made us leave the chateau and go and live in a cottage, said Dorothy. Never, replied Blanche with impatience. Nor the reason that my lord the Marquis, Dorothy checked herself, hesitated, and then endeavored to change the topic. But the curiosity of Blanche was too much awakened to suffer the subject thus easily to escape her and she pressed the old housekeeper to proceed with her account, upon whom, however, no entreaties could prevail, and it was evident that she was alarmed for the imprudence into which she had already betrayed herself. "'I perceive,' said Emily, smiling, "'that all old mansions are haunted. I am lately come from a place of wonders, but unluckily, since I left it, I have heard almost all of them explained.' Blanche was silent. Dorothy looked grave and sighed, and Emily felt herself still inclined to believe more of the wonderful than she chose to acknowledge. Just then she remembered the spectacle she had witnessed in a chamber of Udolfo, and, by an odd kind of coincidence, the alarming words that had accidentally met her eye in the manuscript papers, which she had destroyed in obedience to the command of her father, and she shuddered at the meaning they seemed to impart almost as much as at the horrible appearance disclosed by the black veil. The Lady Blanche, meanwhile, unable to prevail with Dorothy to explain the subject of her late hints, had desired, on reaching the door that terminated the gallery, and which she found fastened on the preceding day, to see the suite of rooms beyond. "'Dear young lady,' said the housekeeper, "'I have told you my reason for not opening them. I have never seen them since my dear lady died.' and it would go hard with me to see them now. Pray, madame, do not ask me again. Certainly I will not, replied Blanche, if that is really your objection. Alas, it is, said the old woman. We loved her well, and I will always grieve for her. Time runs round. It is now many years since she died. But I remember everything that happened then, as if it was but yesterday. 
Many things that have passed of late years are gone quite from my memory, while those so long ago I can see as if in a glass. She paused, but afterwards, as they walked up the gallery, added to Emily, This young lady sometimes brings the late Marchioness to my mind. I can remember when she looked just as blooming, and very like her when she smiles. Poor lady, how gay she was when she first came to the chateau. And she was not gay afterwards, said Blanche. Dorothy shook her head, and Emily observed her with eyes strongly expressive of the interest she now felt. Let us sit down in this window, said the Lady Blanche, on reaching the opposite end of the gallery. And pray, Dorothy, if it is not painful to you, tell us something more about the Marchioness. I should like to look into the glass you spoke of just now, and see a few of the circumstances which you say often pass over it. No, my lady, replied Dorothy, if you knew as much as I do, you would not, for you would find there a dismal train of them. I often wish I could shut them out, but they will rise to my mind. I see my dear lady on her deathbed, her very look, and remember all she said. It was a terrible scene. Why was it so terrible? said Emily with emotion. Ah, dear young lady, is not death always terrible? replied Dorothy. To some further enquiries of Blanche, Dorothy was silent, and Emily, observing the tears in her eyes, forbore to urge the subject, and endeavored to withdraw the attention of her young friend to some object in the gardens, where the Count, with the Countess and Monsieur Dupont appearing, they went down to join them. When he perceived Emily, he advanced to meet her, and presented her to the Countess, in a manner so benign, that it recalled most powerfully to her mind the idea of her late father, and she felt more gratitude to him than embarrassment towards the Countess, who, however, received her with one of those fascinating smiles which her caprice sometimes allowed her to assume, and which was now the result of a conversation the Count had held with her concerning Emily. Whatever this might be, or whatever had passed in his conversation with the Lady Abbess, whom he had just visited, Esteem and kindness were strongly apparent in his manner when he addressed Emily, who experienced that sweet emotion which arises from the consciousness of possessing the approbation of the good. For to the Count's worth she had been inclined to yield her confidence almost from the first moment in which she had seen him. Before she could finish her acknowledgments for the hospitality she had received, and mention of her design of going immediately to the convent, she was interrupted by an invitation to lengthen her stay at the chateau, which was pressed by the Count and the Countess, with an appearance of such friendly sincerity, that, though she much wished to see her old friends at the monastery, and to sigh once more over her father's grave, she consented to remain a few days at the chateau. To the abbess, however, she immediately wrote, mentioning her arrival in Languedoc, and her wish to be received into the convent as a boarder, she also sent letters to Monsieur Quenel and to Valancourt, whom she merely informed of her arrival in France, and, as she knew not where the latter might be stationed, she directed her letter to his brother's seat in Gascony. In the evening, Lady Blanche and Monsieur Dupont walked with Emily to the cottage of Lavoisin, which she had now a melancholy pleasure in approaching, for time had softened her grief for the loss of St. Albert, though it could not annihilate it, and she felt a soothing sadness in indulging the recollections 
which this scene recalled. La Voisin was still living, and seemed to enjoy, as much as formerly, the tranquil evening of a blameless life. He was sitting at the door of his cottage, watching some of his grandchildren playing on the grass before him, and, now and then, with a laugh or a commendation, encouraging their sports. He immediately recollected Emily, whom he was much pleased to see, and she was as rejoiced to hear that he had not lost one of his family since her departure. "'Yes, mademoiselle,' said the old man, "'we all live merrily together still, thank God, "'and I believe there is not a happier family "'to be found in Languedoc than ours.' "'Emily did not trust herself in the chamber "'where St. Aubert died, "'and, after half an hour's conversation "'with La Voisin and his family, "'she left the cottage. "'During these, the first days of her stay "'at Chateau Leblanc, "'she was often affected by observing "'the deep but silent melancholy which, at times, stole over Dupont, and Emily, pitying the self-delusion, which disarmed him of the will to depart, determined to withdraw herself as soon as the respect she owed the Count and Countess de Villefort would permit. The dejection of his friend soon alarmed the anxiety of the Count, to whom Dupont, at length, confided the secret of his hopeless affection, which, however, the former could only commiserate, though he secretly determined to befriend his suit, if an opportunity of doing so should ever occur. Considering the dangerous situation of Dupont, he but briefly opposed his intention of leaving Chateau Leblanc on the following day, but drew from him a promise of a longer visit, when he could return with safety to his peace. Emily herself, though she could not encourage his affection, esteemed him both for the many virtues he possessed, and for the services she had received from him. And it was not without tender emotions of gratitude and pity that she now saw him depart for his family seat in Gascony, while he took leave of her with a countenance so expressive of love and grief as to interest the Count more warmly in his cause than before. In a few days Emily also left the chateau, but not before the Count and Countess had received her promise to repeat her visit very soon and she was welcomed by the abbess with the same maternal kindness she had formerly experienced, and by the nuns with much expression of regard. The well-known scenes of the convent occasioned her many melancholy recollections, but with these were mingled others that inspired gratitude for having escaped the various dangers that had pursued her since she quitted it, and for the good which she yet possessed and though she once more wept over her father's grave with tears of tender affection, her grief was softened from its former acuteness. Some time after her return to the monastery, she received a letter from her uncle, Monsieur Quenel, in answer to information that she had arrived in France, and to her inquiries concerning such of her affairs as he had undertaken to conduct during her absence, especially as to the period for which La Vallée had been let, whither it was her wish to return, if it should appear that her income would permit her to do so. The reply of Monsieur Quenel was cold and formal, as she expected, expressing neither concern for the evils she suffered, nor pleasure that she was now removed from them. Nor did he allow the opportunity to pass of reproving her for her rejection of Count Murano, whom he affected still to believe a man of honor and fortune nor of vehemently disclaiming against Montoni, to whom he had always, till now, felt himself to be inferior. 
On Emily's pecuniary concerns, he was not very explicit. He informed her, however, that the term for which La Vallée had been engaged was nearly expired, but, without inviting her to his own house, added that her circumstances would by no means allow her to reside there, and earnestly advised her to remain, for the present, in the convent of St. Clair. To her enquiries respecting poor old Teresa, her late father's servant, he gave no answer. In the postscript to his letter, Monsieur Quinel mentioned Monsieur Motville, in whose hands the late St. Albert had placed the chief of his personal property, as being likely to arrange his affairs nearly to the satisfaction of his creditors, and that Emily would recover much more of her fortune than she had formerly reason to expect. The letter also enclosed to Emily an order upon a merchant in Narbonne for a small sum of money. The tranquility of the monastery, and the liberty she was suffered to enjoy in wandering among the woods and shores of this delightful province, gradually restored her spirits to their natural tone, except that anxiety would sometimes intrude concerning Valancourt, as the time approached when it was possible that she might receive an answer to her letter. End of Volume 3, Chapter 12 Recording by Missy Guangzhou, China The Mysteries of Adolfo by Anne Radcliffe Volume 3, Chapter 13 As when a wave that from a cloud impends and swelled with tempest on the ship descends, white are the decks with foam, the winds aloud howl o'er the mast and sing through every shroud. Pale, trembling, tired, the sailors freeze with fears and instant death on every wave appears. Pope's Homer The Lady Blanche, meanwhile, who was left much alone, became impatient for the company of her new friend, whom she wished to observe sharing in the delight she received from the beautiful scenery around. She had now no person to whom she could express her admiration and communicate her pleasures, no eye that sparkled to her smile or countenance that reflected her happiness and she became spiritless and pensive. The Count, observing her dissatisfaction, readily yielded to her entreaties, and reminded Emily of her promised visit. But the silence of Valancourt, which was now prolonged far beyond the period when a letter might have arrived from Estuvière, oppressed Emily with severe anxiety, and rendering her averse to society, she would willingly have deferred her acceptance of this invitation till her spirits should be relieved. The Count and his family, however, pressed to see her, and as the circumstances that prompted her wish for solitude could not be explained, there was an appearance of caprice in her refusal, which she could not persevere in without offending the friends whose esteem she valued. At length, therefore, she returned upon a second visit to Chateau Leblanc. Here the friendly manner of Count de Villefort encouraged Emily to mention to him her situation, respecting the estates of her late aunt, and to consult him on the means of recovering them. He had little doubt that the law would decide in her favor, and advising her to apply to it, offered first to write to an advocate at Avignon, on whose opinion he thought he could rely. His kindness was gratefully accepted by Emily, who, soothed by the courtesy she daily experienced, would have been once more happy, could she have been assured of Valancourt's welfare and unaltered affection. 
She had now been above a week at the château, without receiving intelligence of him, and though she knew, that if he was absent from his brother's residence, it was scarcely probable her letter had yet reached him, she could not forbear to admit doubts and fears, that destroyed her peace. Again, she would consider of all that might have happened in the long period since her first seclusion at Adolfo, and her mind was sometimes so overwhelmed with an apprehension that Valancourt was no more, or that he lived no longer for her, that the company even of Blanche became intolerably oppressive, and she would sit alone in her apartment for hours together, when the engagements of the family allowed her to do so without incivility. In one of these solitary hours she unlocked a little box, which contained some letters of Valancourt, with some drawings she had sketched during her stay in Tuscany, the latter of which were no longer interesting to her, but in the letters she now with melancholy indulgence meant to retrace the tenderness that had so often soothed her, and rendered her, for a moment, insensible of the distance which separated her from the writer. But their effect was now changed. The affection they expressed appealed so forcibly to her heart, when she considered that it had perhaps yielded to the powers of time and absence, and even the view of the handwriting recalled so many painful recollections, that she found herself unable to go through the first she had opened, and sat musing, with her cheek resting on her arm, and tears stealing from her eyes, when old Dorothy entered the room to inform her that dinner would be ready, an hour before the usual time. Emily started on perceiving her, and hastily put up the papers, but not before Dorothy had observed both her agitation and her tears. "'Ah, Manzo,' said she, "'you who are so young, have you reason for sorrow?' Emily tried to smile, but was unable to speak. "'Alas, dear young lady, when you come to my age, you will not weep at trifles, and surely you have nothing serious to grieve you.' "'No, Dorothy, nothing of any consequence,' replied Emily. Dorothy, now stooping to pick up something that had dropped from the 